lady up on Friday about 12.30 at the airport. Fell in love with her instantly. <laughs> instantly. She's my kind of lady. <laughs> and because her plane leaves this afternoon, uh, I'm going to take her home with me. And I have control over whether she gets to the airport or not. <laughs> and she may not. I may just keep her for the rest of her life. So, I haven't heard her story, and I can hardly wait. So without further ado, please help me welcome Beth. I don't know about that. <laughs> I do know one thing. When she met me at the airport, I thought, oh, my God, what am I in for? She's holding the sign, and I left it out there. I forgot to bring it in here. I was going to show it to you. It's a huge word. I'm looking for Beth G. And you know, you know what that reminded me of? The reason that I switched from whiskey to wine. Because I always thought the FBI was going to be looking for me. Because we had to sign our names when we went into a state liquor store. And I knew they were looking for me. And so I just, I told her to put the sign down, for God's sake. What did she think this was? It's, um, I'm an alcoholic. My name is Beth Gordon. And you hang around me for two minutes, and you know I'm an alcoholic. Um, it, 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 this has been something. It, it really has. I get, I get kind of choked up, and I, I don't like to do that. I don't like to cry. But I get kind of emotional because I just feel that sobriety is such a gift, and uh, it's, it's such a privilege such a privilege to be in any meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous anywhere, and the privilege comes with having friends that are are so precious, and, and you can go months, years, without seeing somebody, and then all of a sudden, there they are, and you can pick up the conversation where you left off, and, and it is. Another reason I don't like to cry is because my false eyelashes will fall off. <laughs> you think these are mine, you're nuts. It's... Uh, one of those things I lost <coughs> through alcohol, my eyelashes, and, and uh, these are pretty good. They're 117 Browns, if you'd like to go and buy some. And uh, once they did fall off, and they kind of floated down my face and ended up around here, and I look like Adolf delivering a message. Um, my sponsor said honesty is important, but sometimes you get too honest. It's, uh, I, I will tell you that it is by the grace of God and uh, rooms like this and people like you that I have not found it necessary to pick up a drink or use anything else that's going to make me dizzy or than I am uh, <laughs> since March the 5th of 1972 and for this I am very, very grateful. I also have a home group. It's called Golden Link, and it meets on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. And when I miss not being there, I have kitchen duty for the next month. And um, it, I don't know what I do without it. I, um, 
And it is such a privilege to be here, and the sun is shining, and that's because Vinoy and I are going home. Whenever we speak together, the weather is bad. We were in Hawaii together, and they had the worst hurricane that they've had since or before. And wherever we go, there seems to be rotten weather. Um, it's, it's just... Um, I got off the plane, and I said, and I had an immediate love affair going for Sis, the way I've had a love affair going for Alcoholics Anonymous since I walked through the doors. It's uh, saved my life, and not only my life, but the life of my family. And they know this, and they remind me of this, and, and it's out of those mouths that come, thank God, for Alcoholics Anonymous. I have some grandchildren, eight of them, another one on the way, and uh, my oldest granddaughter is down at Pensacola. Uh, she was a four-point student in, in uh, high school, uh, was invited to have scholarships at three of the finest universities in the state of Ohio, and she opted to join the United States Navy because she figured she could learn more about airplanes and they've always been her love. And she's sitting down there in Pensacola and I spoke to her and, and uh, because our schedules couldn't get together, I was unable to see her. But she said to me, Grandma, you're where you belong. And she said, we don't, as we get older, the ones of us who are your grandchildren and we know about your alcoholism and we know what has saved your life. We are eternally grateful for the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that comes straight out of the mouth of an 18-year-old who never saw her grandmother drink, but who knows that I'm in a place that has saved my life. And for that, they are extremely grateful. I want to thank the committee for having me. I want to thank you for all the courtesies and, and everything else that's been afforded me since I've been here. Um, I love my fruit basket and uh, everything else. It's, um, it's a privilege and it's an honor. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous to stay sober. And that was it. I did. I wanted to stop drinking. And I never knew what AA was going to give to me. You introduced me to a God of my understanding. You have supported me through some of the worst times in, in my life that, that I've had to meet head-on sober. And it's through being places like this and hearing wonderful speakers the way we have this weekend. And I, I really have never heard such wonderful things coming from a podium in, in all the conferences I've been to. It's, I, I just, I'd like to thank you all. Um, I, I can't pick out things, that, you know, that's, I've got this memory that, that forgets quickly, but I do know the one message that I heard from here, from everybody, was we're responsible for our sobriety, we're responsible for suiting up and showing up, we're responsible for being the best kind of people that we can be in our daily lives, and that's what's so important. It's, um, I, you know, I, I get thinking about um, this wonderful thing called AA. And, and I get thinking about um, how grateful I am for that gift that, that was given to me. Uh, I didn't ask for it. It happened. And what I try to do and have tried to do is to live my life on a daily basis to pay back the giver of the gift. And I'm not standing up here perfect. 
I'm not standing up here knowing everything because I think the day you know everything is the day that you're through. It's the day when you'll stop going to meetings. It's the day when um, all the stinky thinking comes back. And, and I don't want it to be that way. I've learned lessons and had real good teachers about that. My first sponsor, uh, who was always there for me and who gave me so much, uh, ended up committing suicide when I was seven years sober. Um, something happened to her. She stopped living this way of life. She stopped practicing the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous in all her affairs. And slowly she stopped going to meetings. And she, on a very sad day, committed suicide. And you know what? We were talking about how over the weekend I've heard, you know, how we think everything is our fault. And I went through a period of time that I thought, I'd done something wrong. I, you know, because she committed suicide, I have done something awful. And, and it took a while for me to, to get with it, to know that, no, it was nothing that I did. It was something that happens. It happens when you stay away from meetings. And this is why I still have to go to a minimum of, of four meetings a week and why I'm actively involved in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous because I've had teachers that have taught me that if you go back out, if you stop, stop going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, that what's going to happen is you, you are going to use it again, and you will. And some people just can't make it back to these rooms. And to me, that would be a tragedy. I also had an aunt who was there when I picked up a phone and called her on March the 4th of 1972 and told her that I was dying and that I wanted help. And at that time, my Aunt Jean had 19 years of uninterrupted sobriety in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And as that year went by, she figured that she didn't need to go to meetings, that she had 19 years of sobriety, and she knew it all. And it was a matter of six months after she stopped going to meetings that she picked up her first drink, and three months later, she died of internal hemorrhaging. She was there when I, I picked up that phone for help. And she died, and that was also a lesson, that you stay in these meeting rooms and you do everything that is humanly possible that you can do. I always thought that the day would come. It was always there in the committee, and I've got this committee in my head. And boy, can it get going. You don't need to go to a meeting tonight. Why don't you stay home and lie down on the sofa and watch Mother Love <laughs> and find out about how to forget and forgive. And you don't need to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Why don't you just stay home and do this? And I can't listen to that committee. It, it, it keeps going. It's a cesspool of my life. And, and there's no moving it except to be in these meeting rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then it shuts up. And it stops until I walk out the door. And then it has a few things to say to me. And I don't pay any attention to it. I... Um, you know, I thought I had it made at one time in my life, and I remember telling my sponsor that, um, and oh, by the way, I must tell you, I immediately got another sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> you 
you know, she brings out my homicidal tendencies. <laughs> I can think of more ways to do away with that woman. I thought of tripping her into a tub full of lye water. And, and that's supposed to dissolve absolutely everything. I mean, even your bones go right down the drain. I have to call the old witch every day. Every day. I mean, I've been sober since 1972, and I have to call her every day, and sometimes I call her and say, Hello, Evelyn, this is Beth. And she says, So what? It keeps me humble. And she's always around, and she always finds out, and she's always got her big nose into my business. And I love her to death. It's a love-hate relationship, I'll tell you that. And she's always there when I need her. But anyway, I had you know, to open my mouth and, and say, you know, I, uh, I don't know how much more I can learn. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, it's, it's like uh, you hear the same thing. And I was going through that period of time when it was like, oh, I have to suit up and show up at another meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said to me, you're on an adventure and it's never ending. And you'll never learn it all. Never learn it all. And I said, oh, yes, I will. The day I die, I'll know it all. And she said to me, let me tell you something, toots, about the day you die. The day you die, you go to the big meeting in the sky. And when you walk through the doors, you go through those doors or gates as a new person. And you got to start all over again. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. Rap. I'll tell you who the Buckeye Buzzsaw is. And I don't know where Clancy got that one. I'll have to ask him about that. Um, but she's, she's something else. Anyway, no, you never have it made. It's like an adventure. You know, it's like kind of like being on a choo-choo train. And you go along and you look out the window and sometimes you see beautiful things. Like you, we look out here and we see, you know, the Gulf of Mexico and, and the sun is shining and, and that's because Vinoy and I are going home. And uh, the birds are singing. That too is because Vinoy and I are going home. And um, sometimes, you know, you pass areas that are, are devastated. There's, there's been a drought or... or uh, you know, the landscape is in shambles, and, and then sometimes you pass places where there's beautiful flowers blowing in the breeze, and, and then again you get into the areas of devastation. And my sponsor said to me, you know, that's, that's what this is all about. She said, it's, this is life, and you learn to meet life on life's terms. You learn to get through the devastated areas, and, and you go on. And she said, the thing about it is, is that if you stick around Alcoholics Anonymous and, and get in the center of it, and, and you really learn, and you really listen, that when you, you are on a choo-choo train, and, and you, it's like looking out, and pretty soon in a devastated area, you're going to be able to see a flower. And you will see rays of sunshine coming through a cloud. And, and I believe her today. I believe her. And, and I've got to uh, tell you a little bit about what it was like and, and what happened and, and uh, what it's like today because that's what the big book says I've got to do. And I'll tell you something else. I've got something in my nose, and I don't know what to do about it. I can either pick it out or let it sit. 
and it's driving me insane. And I have prayed about this thing in my nose. And so far, it's not doing me any good. So if I suddenly start going, well, you know what's happening. Anyway, uh, one time when I was born, I was a little girl. I like to I like to run in the sunshine. I like to chase butterflies. I love to talk to ants. And, and I never got an answer. And you know what reminded me of that? One of my grandchildren, Jake, who is five and knows everything, was was on his knees and and was peering down and about this far away from the pavement and he was talking and I thought, What is he doing? And all of a sudden he looked up and he said, Grandma, I'm trying to ask this aunt, and he was moving down the sidewalk with the aunt. I'm trying to ask this aunt some questions, and it's not answering me. Grandma, could you come and talk to it and, and, and ask it a few things? And so I, yeah, sure, Jake. So I got down on my hands and knees, and I'm talking to this dumb aunt. I'm asking it, and you know, and there were a few more, and they kept flying by. I asked them where they were from, and where they lived, and how many kids they had, and blah, blah, blah. And I'd say, oh, oh, really? Oh, hmm, you have 10,000 kids? How wonderful. Mm-hmm, how do you feed them all? Is that what you're carrying, you know? And he looked right at me and he said, I knew it would work. Grandmas know everything. You can talk to anybody. And it took me back, you know. And then I thought, yeah, one time in my life I was doing that. I loved having tea with my raggedy underneath the tree. And I, I just love living and love life. And then I went to school. And my whole life started to change. Kids made fun of me. Kids made fun of me because I didn't have a father. My father was murdered at the age of 24 in a speakeasy in Chicago. He was an alcoholic in full bloom. And I didn't have a dad until I was eight and a half years old, and my mother remarried one of the finest men I have ever known in my life. You talk about support, and you talk about love, and he had it all. And, and I, always, I always could go to my father except for one thing. My mother was an alcoholic. And, and when I was in high school... I had, I had shared this with my homeroom teacher, and he found an article that had come out in the Saturday Evening Post, and it was all about Alcoholics Anonymous and alcoholism, and he said to me, here, I think this is what is going on with your mother. And I remember running home with that magazine, and I said to my dad, this is what it's all about. And it was the Jack Alexander article. And my father said, no, it isn't. He said, this isn't what's the matter with your mother at all. And I saw my mother going downhill a day at a time, and I swore to myself that I was never going to be like my mother. And I, I can remember, and I still talk, my brother still talks about it. I had a stepbrother that was 10 years younger than me, and, and I adored him. And, and my brother said that, that he can remember today that when he would get sick at school, how they call me in high school, and I'd take a train and, and I'd take a bus and I'd walk three miles to the school and I'd get him and we'd try desperately to get a hold of my mother or to get a hold of somebody else to come and pick us up. And sometimes nobody would answer and I'd carry him home in my back five miles from school. 
and, and he remembered things like that, and so did I, and I, I continued to swear that the things like that were never going to happen in my life. I hated alcohol, and that's another reason I felt different. Because all my relatives would come over to the house, and, and they'd all, <coughs> we're so glad to see you. My, how you've grown. You know, that stuff. And, and then they'd be talking, and then they'd bring out the bottles, and then they'd bring out the glasses, and they'd fill the glasses up with ice, and, and then they'd drink that stuff. And then everybody'd get mad at everybody else. They'd all swear, and everybody'd go home, and we never ate dinner. And, and I figured I wasn't going to be like that. And, and it got to the point that, at, especially after my grandfather died, and my mother and I lived with my grandfather for the first five years of, of my life. And uh, I remember going down to see what Santa Claus had left me under a Christmas tree when I was five, and I found my grandfather dead. And my grandfather was a shining, shining light in, in my life. And, and things started to be taken away from me like that, and I didn't understand why. And, and I talked funny in school. My mother was from Aberdeen, Scotland, along with my family. And uh, I, I twirled these R's, and, and I talked that way. Um, and my mother ended up giving me nine years of diction lessons. She took me someplace to get it so that I wouldn't sound funny anymore. But I wasn't accepted because I didn't have a father and I talked funny. And, and so I kind of went in uh, to myself, and you hear that from these podiums, and, and I just didn't want anything to do with anybody else. And, and so as, as time went by, I became very selfish and self-centered. And you never would have known it because I wore a mask continually when I was growing up. I wore a mask. And, and I was a people pleaser. And, and I could think of ten different ways to get rid of you on the inside, and, and yet I went along with you, because that's what I had to do, and I kept that mask on until I walked in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and my sponsor said to me, you don't need to pretend anymore. What you have to do in Alcoholics Anonymous is take the cotton out of your ears and shove it in your mouth and listen and learn how to hear, and your whole life will change, and it did, and it has. But back then, oh, and then I went through life that way, and then I met up with, what happened? Is it still on? Yeah. Oh, okay. Too bad. Uh, <laughs> I met Prince Charming, and I got into his little blue Ford, 1955 Ford, and we went scooting off into the sunlight, and I knew my life was going to change. I knew that uh, I was going to be just loved to death and that I could get my way. Well, marriage is not like that. And a crash course in marriage is this, is that it's a two-way street that you've got to give. And I didn't know how to give. I knew how to take. And I wasn't happy. And I didn't laugh a lot. And every day was miserable. Because I made it that way. You know, I heard in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's a truth, that you can be as happy as you want to be. And I, was, I chose not to be happy. I chose to see a dark cloud and everything that came along in my life. And today I can't be that way. I look for that ray of sunshine, and it's always there when I go through the devastated areas. 
And uh, so we were at a party once, and, and somebody said to me, and up to this time I hadn't had a drink because I thought about what it was like, and I didn't have a drink. And then one day we were at a party, and somebody said to me, why don't you smile? You never smile. Why don't you learn how to relax? I didn't smile though I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and my sponsor said to me, why don't you smile and give your face something to do while you're running around all these meetings and reading the big book. And I've never stopped. And uh, so he said, why don't you have a drink? And he held it out. And it was a Manhattan on the rocks with a bunch of garbage in it. And I picked that thing up because I was looking for something. And I drank it. And it was the worst thing I ever had in my life. You talk about tears running down your face. You talk about all that kind of st stuff. You talk about, <laughs> my God, it, it, I thought I was going to vomit. It kept coming back and up and down. And then wham. And, and uh, I remember the wham. I remember feeling warm. I remember feeling good. And, and I, <laughs> I sure as heck looked like Elizabeth Taylor after I washed my face. And I went to the, been to the bathroom. And I thought, this is it. And I got it made. And from that time on, I drank, I got drunk, and I got into a lot of trouble. It was like a snowball being pushed off the top of Mount Everest. And it went down quick. And it got bigger as it went. And in the next 14 and a half years, it wasn't only me that went down, it was my children. And it was my husband. One of the worst things in the world is to grow up in a family where there's alcoholism. And you know what? There were a lot of things I couldn't remember. I always felt sorry for myself. I always wept when I was picked up by the law. I always was in tears when things weren't going my way. And I didn't pay any attention to four little people that were running around that house. None. And, and I learned later on in years what it's like when you're at school and you're worried because your mother's supposed to pick you up from school and she doesn't show up. And, and so my daughter Ann said that, that she, she remembers one day when she ran home because we were real close to the school. And, and she, she ran home and she was 10 years old. And she said she came in the back door and she saw my car there and, and uh, she ran inside and, and she called my name and I didn't answer her. And she said and she went up to the bathroom and there was nothing but blood all around. I'd slit my wrist. And she said she didn't know what to do. And, and that was the kind of existence that Ann had. Ann took over and, and literally raised her brothers and sister. Annie was always there. Annie, Annie was the one that found their shoes in the morning, and Annie was the one that packed their lunches, and Annie was the one that at school she'd say to those children, if you get sick, stay in school, don't go home. And home became something like a living hell for these children. And I was responsible, and you told me I was responsible for them when I got sober. I was responsible to go home and to treat my family the way I was treating members of Alcoholics Anonymous in meeting rooms. And you kept saying to me, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to be coming to these meetings and going home and, and acting the way that you acted before? It, it doesn't gel.
You, you can't do it. And, and the sadness and, and the loneliness that, that was there in that home. And, and I look at their homes today, and I see healthy, normal households. And for that, I am eternally grateful. But it's been work. I am responsible. I am responsible for out there. I am responsible today to carry a message. And to carry a message, and it was said in these rooms, to carry a message in a supermarket. To and you know what's hard to do? When there are three people in front of you in line, and their baskets are loaded, and you're standing there with your Millbrook bread. And that's all. And nobody says, oh, my dear, would you like to go before me? And I want to tell you what goes through this head. The committee really gets going. And one day I even said to a woman in front of me, I poked her on the shoulder, and I said, I hate to tell you this, madam, but do you know what I'd like to do with this loaf of Millbrook bread? And, and she looked at me and she said, oh, my dear, is that all you have? And I said, yes, it is. Would you go in front of me? And I said, I'd be delighted. But, you know, you say the serenity prayer forward and backward and front. It's something else. So, anyway, the, the drinking took me downhill horrifically. And I'm not going through a drunkalogue because there's too much in sobriety. But it got me to a place. In my life, on March the 4th of 1972, when I was sitting all alone at a kitchen table, and I finished everything there was to drink in the house, and, and it was the first time I could ever remember that that horrible churning wasn't in my stomach, that I needed more, that I had run out, that I didn't know what to do, that panic. And that panic had always been there. I always had to have a lot of alcohol in the house. I always had to have stuff hidden all around. And I did hide it. I was a master in hiding my alcohol. My favorite place was in the douchebag. And I had, no, I had no trouble with the second step at all. Uh, and I'd pour it in there. And because nobody looks in them, you know, I mean, that's not the going thing. And I pour it in there, my wine, and, and I put foil over the top so the fumes wouldn't come out, and I'd hang it up in the bathroom. And then when the great thirst would come over me, I'd just go in the bathroom, and I'd shut the door and unclick that hose, and glurp, down it would go. And that worked swell. Worked swell until he found it. And he thought I was going ins insane, and he thought I was going nuts, and he said, I had it with your bottles hanging out the window, and now you're putting it in here. What is going on with you? I think you have a drinking problem. <laughs> See, I had figured before that that uh, if I painted my wine bottles white, you know, I could hang them out the window on a white rope. I, and nobody would see them, and I knew they couldn't see them because we live in a white house, and I went outside, and, and I looked, and I didn't see them hanging there. And so then every time, you know, when you're, when you're hoovering and, and stuff like that, and nothing is agreeing with what you're doing, and, you know, and the bed never cooperated with me when I'd make it, all the sheets would come falling down on one side, and it was a real trauma. And I was sick and tired of making little maps 
where I'd hid stuff in the house because I never could remember where I hid it. And then I'd try to read these maps, and I never could read my own writing. And, and so, you know, I thought, well, I'll paint them white, hang, hang one out the window, and then I can just pull it up when I get this great thirst and take a little slurp out of it and plop it back down. And it worked for a while, and then one day he saw it. And he called me outside, and he said, Beth, what do you see? And I said, nothing. <laughs> and he said to me, you stand right there. I'm, don't you move. You promised me. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, I'm going down the street to get Marty. Marty was his best friend. The minute he was around that house, by God, I broke every Olympic record going up those stairs, hauled in that bottle, shoved it underneath the mattress, and ran back down. I wasn't even breathing hard when he came back with Marty. And he said to Marty, do you see what she's doing? Take a look, Marty. She's hanging her bottle out the window. There's something the matter with her. Marty looked up and he said, I don't see anything, Bruce. Maybe you ought to go to a psychiatrist. <laughs> Truly, this is a family illness. <laughs> At that kitchen table, I watched my family go to church. Nobody said goodbye. Nobody even smiled. Nobody. They'd stop smiling. They'd stop talking. We talk about this being a lonely sickness. How lonely can it be when you live in a home where nobody talks? How lonely can it be when you go outside every so once in a while to maybe see a neighbor and you wave and nobody waves back? It's the loneliest place in the world. And I don't want to be that lonely anymore. I don't want to see that happen anymore. On those faces, I saw the hell and the devastation. All the horror and all the damnation that this disease had brought down on their family. And they left, and the door shut. And I knew something. I knew that everything that I'd seen, and I still get the goosebumps when I think about this, everything that I'd seen on those faces was because I am an alcoholic. And I wanted to do something. I wanted to live. I knew I was dying. And there's no doubt about it. I weighed 62 pounds. I wasn't eating anymore. I was drinking around the clock. I had discovered stuff like Mad Dog. The guy on the next street made it. And I drank Mad Dog on a daily basis all around the clock. And I always thought I was getting my nutrients because they had crunchy guck on the bottom. <laughs> I just knew I was dying. I'd stopped feeling. I'd stopped everything. My life had come to a standstill, and I wanted to live. All of a sudden, I was going to give anything to live. Anything. To know what it was like to laugh, to, to feel, to, to enjoy life. And I didn't want to die. And so I did the only thing I knew what to do was to pick up a phone and to call my Aunt Jean. 
who I knew was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I had gone to AA over the years three different times. Once when my husband told me I had to go, and I came in these rooms, and I wasn't honest, and I didn't have an open mind, and I wasn't willing to do a doggone thing you asked me to do. I wanted to do it my way. And the next time was a couple of years later, when, when the social service workers appeared at the door, and they said to me, you have a drinking problem, and you better do something to turn your life around, or we're taking your children away, married or not married. The neighbors had started to notice that the children were going to school not well dressed. It would be wintertime, and they'd be going in little tiny sweaters to the bus stop. They, they would have shoes on that didn't match because Annie was doing the best that she could do and sometimes she couldn't find everything that matched. And, and they were losing weight. Now, my husband was a sales engineer and he traveled. And he was gone most of the week. And, and those children were so terrorized that they didn't dare tell him what was going on at home. That their mother never drew a sober breath that they were cooking their own meals, that they were trying to do the best they could to take a little lunch to school with them, and sometimes they didn't take it at all. Because when he was gone, there was no food in the refrigerator. Some neighbor blew the whistle, and the social service workers were there, and were going to yank them away all my life since I had been that little girl running in the sunshine and chasing butterflies. I had wanted to be a good wife and a good mother, and I didn't know what was happening. It, it was just all evaporating in front of my eyes. And I didn't understand why. I didn't understand why I'd stand at the second-story window of my home and, and my, my fist around a bottle of wine, and I'd look out that window and I'd see my children standing at a bus stop. And they were over here, and, and the other mothers were over here, and they had the hands of their children. Nobody wants to have their children do anything with the children of a drunk after a while. And, and these women's hair was shining, and, and I could hear the laughter. And I wanted to be out there so badly with my arms around my children and with my hair shining and laughing and it wasn't happening and I didn't understand why and the pain was so severe that I had to drink because as I Clancy said last night we go through these periods of time when when we are when we're sober and and the pain is so intense and so great and we're not willing to do a darn thing about it I wasn't following directions in here and I drank I went around to Alcoholics Anonymous when the social service workers were going to yank my children and the same thing happened four years later when I was stood in front of a judge with my ninth DUI with an assault and battery charge because I got mad at the Summit County Sheriff because he picked me up and then he wanted to take me home because I was so drunk and, and I wouldn't go and we got into an altercation and I slapped him on the head with my wine bottle and he ended up with 24 stitches and I, I got handcuffed and I had my picture taken with some numbers under my chin and uh, I went to one meeting a week 
one meeting a week on top of not being honest, not having an open mind, and not being willing. I want to tell you, I'm on the, my landing gears are down on the approach of 68 years old. And I'm wondering to myself, what if I had gone to one a school once a week from the age of five, where I'd be today? You want to know some? I'd be going to third grade with one of my grandchildren. <laughs> and, and I don't want that to happen. And this is why I continue to be an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous besides my great love for this fellowship and why I go to meetings and I suit up and I show up whether I want to go or not and when I don't want to go is when I need to go and I have to be there. On that morning when I talked to my Aunt Jean and I told her I wanted help she asked me the name of an old-timer who'd never given up hope on me, and his name is Jerry Jackson. And Jerry died in 1978 with umpty years of sobriety, and I'd met him early on when I had been fiddle-fooing around with Alcoholics Anonymous. And Jerry came over to see me. And Jerry said to me, the road isn't going to be easy because nothing in life that's worthwhile is easy, but I'll promise you something, Bethy. If you'll take our hands and you'll walk this road with us, one step at a time, one minute at a time if you have to, he said your life is going to change, and it's going to change in a positive manner. And it did. And he gave me hope that morning in that kitchen. You know what? It's the same kind of hope we give to each other in, in these meetings that that hope we give when we're sitting in a meeting and somebody said, you know, from here they say, is there anybody new here? And, and you see this little tiny hand go up and you see this person stand up and they say their name and they're choking out that they're an alcoholic. And you go over to see them right after the meeting and you give them your phone number and, and you tell them something that will give them hope. That's the greatest thing we have is that hope that if we do what we're supposed to be doing, our whole life will change. And, and I saw that kind of hope one day. I was cleaning my house early on in sobriety, and I knocked a, a spider web out of a corner, and a little spider fell down, pew, on this little invisible something. He looked like he was right there in midair all by himself. And, you know, I wanted to kill him. I have this thing about spiders. But I couldn't do it. I thought, he's hanging on to an invisible something the same way we hang on in, in those dark areas of our lives. That hang on there with the hope that we can rebuild and we can work through what has been destroyed. And so I watched him. Now, I didn't stand there like some kind of a dingbat and, and watch him because it takes him a while. But every time I'd walk back through the living room, I'd see him get a little higher on this invisible thing. He put one foot in front of the other, slowly but surely, with determination, climbed and rebuilt what had been destroyed. It's the most beautiful cobweb I've ever seen in my life. His home, his web, 
And, and you know, the sunlight would come through the windows like it is this morning, and it would hit this, and, and it, it would just, it made colors. And, and I could see that kind of hope that Jerry was trying to give to me. And I don't want to forget things like that. It's real important to me. It's important to me today. Something that somebody said to me in, in the first month I was sober, and it was, watch well your beginnings. Watch well your beginnings. And I figured out about a year ago why my life has changed so. It's because I'm doing exactly the same things that I did when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I still read my 24-hour book four times a day out loud to get it in here through the committee and down in here. I read my big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Two pages a day out loud to get it in here through the committee and down into here where it belongs. I'm going to meetings. I listen. I'm never too busy to take a phone call. I'm never too busy to call somebody who has been out of the home group for a couple of weeks and ask them, hey, we miss you, and find out what's going on. Never too busy not to stop and talk to a new person in Alcoholics Anonymous. And those are the things that have kept me going over the years. And that's real important to me today. Then they came, the sponsors. God, be grateful today and pick your own. Back then we had to take what came. And I'm telling you, in they came. And you know what they tell you? Everything you don't want anybody to know. And they stand there and they tell you what's going on in your life. And all they're doing is sharing their experience, strength, and hope with you. And I'm glad 12-step calls have started again because I missed them for a while. I remember the first one I went on. My sponsor called me. I was sober four months. And she said, the hand is out. We're going. And I said, the hand is doing what? And she said, when the hand goes out, we are responsible. I'll be there in 10 minutes. And she was, and she explained to me we were going, there was a call that came in from our area, and we were going to go and take this woman to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, we got there, got out of the car, knocked on the door, and nobody answered. And I started back to the car, and she said, where are you going? And I said, nobody's home. She said, wait a minute. See that window up there on the second floor? It's open this much. Now, you go in to the garage, and you see if she's got an extension ladder in there. I said, that's breaking and entering. She said, no, it isn't. She called us. We didn't call her. And when the hand, oh, God. Went into the garage, and by God, there was an extension ladder. So we put it up, and, and I hold it, and she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm holding it so you can go up. She said, I'm not going up. You are. Here's the big book. I said, I'm afraid of heights. She said, faith and fear don't dwell in the same house. Go up. <laughs> so she's hanging on to the ladder, and she, she was like this from all through. Honest to God, she reminded me that she was laying on a bed, put in the quarter, and, you know, and the whole bed was going like this. So she hangs on to this ladder, and it's going like this, and up I go with a big book. I get to the top, get the window up a little more. She's going, because when now? Oh, Lord God. 
And she gave one massive shake, and I went through the window, caught my foot on the windowsill, and fell flat down on the poor, suffering alcoholic that was laying spread-eagled on the floor, hanging on to her vodka bottle. I'm this far from her nose. I don't know what to say. I've never been on one of these things. So I just looked at her, and I said, Did you call Alcoholics Anonymous? She stayed sober for 15 years till she died, and she said it was out of fear. <laughs> Whatever works. Anyway, so then they go over and they whisper in a corner, and if you ever want a new person to hear you whisper, because they hear better than when you're talking out loud to them. And I heard sick and blah, 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 blah. Some guy said I looked like Papa, like olive oil after a shipwreck when I first got sober. So I was sick, man. They called. So they called this place called Serenity Hall in, in uh, Cleveland, and uh, they weren't taking women at all. And they called uh, Rosary Hall, and they had closed their four beds of detox for women because they were reopening to six beds and they wanted to paint the walls pink and hang up polka dotty curtains or something. So no room there. And so, <coughs> excuse me, they called St. Thomas Hospital in Akron and uh, they had three detox beds for women at that time, but they had a four and a half week waiting list, they said. So my sponsors decided nobody had ever died on them, and by God, nobody was going to start. So we went to two and three meetings a day, seven days a week, for the first year I was sober. And once, once, I called my sponsor and said I was too tired to go. <laughs> Death isn't that quiet. She sucked in air. And when she sucked in air, you hung on to something that didn't move, or you were going to get sucked right through the phone. And she said to me, how ungrateful could you be? If you think you're tired, what do you think we are? We'll be there in ten minutes. Get ready. Ten minutes later, I was standing outside, so happy, I was going to another meeting of alcoholics. And you saved my life in these rooms in these rooms. You saved my life. I heard things. And I never want to forget them. I heard things you told me, like, you know, if you sit in a railroad track and, and a train comes along, engine runs over you, you're getting squashed by a grape. You won't, you won't even care what the coal car does. It's first drink. First drink. That'll do it. And I'd never understood about that first drink until it was explained to me like that. And, and I heard this runny prayer. And my sponsor said to me, that means change. That means changing yourself. Changing your attitude. And said, attitude is gratitude. How grateful can you be that you have a new way of life, that you are picked up by out of the pits of hell. So get on with it. You can always find something to be grateful about. I was told to write down the one thing of value I heard at every meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that I attended. They said it'll hit you right in the pit of your stomach. And in the beginning, I had to tap her on the shoulder when this happened because I shook too badly. 
for the first six months I was sober to even write. And she'd write it down for me, and then I'd take it home, and my husband would rewrite it down. And as a result of doing this, since I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I have ten notebooks that are that thick with the one thing of value that I've heard at every meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that I have attended, and I leaf through those. And, and the one-liners make a lot of sense. Sometimes there's just one word. And, and I use the same things today that I heard so long ago because it makes such sense. I love those, I love those notebooks. Love them. I've shared them with the people that I sponsor, and they do the same thing. I I, uh, I I was whiny a couple of times. I I would I you know poor me you know the thumb sucking business and and uh, my sponsor strongly suggested I go to the library and I get a, a book called Winnie the Pooh and that I should read about somebody in there called Eeyore and I should write a paragraph about how I could identify with Eeyore. <laughs> And everything was pathetic coming out of Eeyore's mouth, and nothing was made any sense, and he held his head down, and he was a poor, sad, pathetic person. He always lost his tail, and he never could find it, and it was boo-hoo, boo-hoo, boo-hoo. Well, of course, he never could find his tail. He never looked around at his rear end, you know. And uh, you better believe that everybody that I sponsor goes and gets the volume of Winnie the Pooh and writes a little one paragraph about Eeyore. It's funny how we pass these things on, isn't it? Just simple stuff like that. I felt a handshake for the first time in my life. Somebody took my cold hand in their warm one and said, Welcome. I felt hug for, hugs for the first time get choked up. People cared. And I kept going back, and I stayed in those rooms, and I was told to stay there. Nobody has ever told me to keep coming back. They don't want to give me the edge. It's just stay here. That's all you have to do. And it was things like that. They, they told me to build my program on the absolutes, honesty and selfishness, purity and love. And they said, you know, you'll never be absolute in anything. But it's something to strive for. And, and there's four questions that come out of those absolutes that is, it's a, a good thing to remember before you open your mouth. Is what you are about to do and say right or wrong? Is what you are about to do and say ugly or beautiful? Is what you are about to say true or false? And most important of all, how will it affect the other guy? My sponsor said to me, you don't take other people's inventories in this program, and I want you to remember something, that the world is a looking glass, and what you see in it is a reflection of yourself. So if you see somebody doing something, and, and you really start taking inventories, you better take a good look at yourself and find out where all of it's coming from. And I've tried to do that over the years. And it isn't that I don't take other people's inventories. I can get going real good. <laughs> but then I have to take a look at this, because this is what's got to change, and this is what's got to continually grow, or I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. But those were my beginnings in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and my family watched. And my family watched me grow. And I started to 
be able to spend some time with my family. And I be at, was able to say to them, how is your day? And I listened to their answers. And you taught me how to talk with people and not at them. And you, you taught me what to do in every facet of my life. And, and I'm still trying to get a handle on, you know, <laughs> what to do sometimes when, in my life. And you're wonderful teachers. And it doesn't make any difference if you're here in Florida. It doesn't make any difference if you're in Georgia. It doesn't make any difference if you're in the state of Washington. It doesn't make any difference where you are. It's always grow and change, and you can learn so much. I've learned so much this weekend. I, my soul is full. And, and I came to believe in you. I believed in you like I've never believed in any. You didn't lie to me. You were honest with me, and you told me the truth. And, and I came to believe so desperately in you, and my sponsor said to me, now it's time. You, At night, you... Uh, Take off your bedroom slippers, Bethy. Get on your knees and, and shove your bedroom slippers underneath your bed. And while you're down there, say thank you. And I said, to who and for what? And she said, you've been sober 24 hours. That's enough to say thank you for. And she said, and then when you get up in the morning and you lie there and you listen to the beginning of the new day, I said, the what? And, you know, you were blooming where you're planted and you're taking time to smell the flowers. And I thought you were a bunch of botanists. And, and she said to me, did you ever hear a day begin? And I said, no. And she said, listen to it. And I started to listen because I was willing to go to any lengths to stay sober. I heard rain for the first time. I heard sleep for the first time. I heard the tinkle of trees after an ice storm. I heard deer calling. I, I heard wind. I heard all the things that we're so blessed with. Life. I heard people breathing in my home. Life. I heard the creaks and groans of the home I was in. Life. Why don't you try it? You might like it. I still do it today. The only thing I would say to you is if you live by yourself and you hear somebody breathing, you better dial 911. <laughs> <laughs> and then she said, get on your knees, and while you're grubbling under your, your bed for your slippers, you remind yourself that you're an alcoholic, and the problem is you, and you get on with this thing called living. And I did it because I wanted to be sober more and I wanted to be drunk. And I found out who I was talking to. And his name is God. I had slammed a door on God many years before. And I found him through you. I love my God. I don't, my God, as I understand him, is a peach. Look what he's done. He doesn't make junky stuff. And, and he's slow. You know, I'll discuss something with him. And, and I wait for this wonderful answer, and it doesn't come. And he's slow, and I understand that. Today's old. He's older in dirt. And uh, 
As you get older, you, you, you sort of don't think as fast. And uh, he is, uh, it's hard to describe. It's wonderful not to be alone. It's wonderful to be able to get in a car and, and drive down the street and have a good old discussion with God. My sponsor said, I know why you like to talk to God, because he doesn't talk to you out loud. He doesn't answer you. Not right away. Oh, he's there. He's always there. He's there. He's in these rooms. And if you're new, you'll find him. All you have to do is stay here. That's all. All you have to do is watch the people's eyes in this room. You talk about the windows of your soul. You talk about the giving and the loving and the sharing and the caring that goes on in these rooms. It's all God-given. I have never asked why me. I, I have raised my fist to the heavens and said I didn't understand. But I've never said why me. I've never prayed for what I wanted. He already knows that. I pray for the courage to get through. That's all I need, the courage to get through today, no matter what it brings. You know, I figure today, why not me? Why not? Who am I? Not to have things is in life. Who am I to look out a window on this journey and, and to see all the daisies all the time, or to see the beautiful water and, and the blue sky and the white clouds and, and never, never have to work through anything. I did not know how to let go and let God. I didn't understand it. You know, you say, I heard you say it all the time, let go, let God, let go. I thought, uh, ah. How do you do it? And my sponsor said to me, and this is before I took my fifth step, because I didn't know how to let go. And my sponsor said to me, did anybody in your life ever fix anything for you? And I said, yeah. And, and she said, give me an instance. And so I remembered when I was that little girl running in the sunshine and chasing butterflies, and, and one day I was having tea with my raggedy underneath a tree. And the dog came along and grabbed raggedy and shook her and, and it, it just one button eye was hanging down on her face and her dress was torn and, and he took a big chunk out of her stomach and, and he tore off her arms and her hair was a mess and, and this was the best friend I had in the world. And I picked her up and her pieces up and, and I took them to my grandpa and I climbed on that lap where I felt so safe and so wonderful and he put his real strong arms around me and the little tears were coming down this little face and I remember I said to him grandpa can you fix this and he looked right at me and I'll never forget this those blue eyes and the smell of that pipe and he said to me, Bethy, I cannot fix her until you let go. 
and I released her to my grandfather. Now, I didn't give him a time limit. I didn't tell him how to sew her back, how to fix her. I didn't give him directions. It was that blind faith of a child. I trusted him. And my sponsor said, that's exactly how you let go. That blind faith of a child. You just release it. Without this, I, I don't know where I'd be today. I had some things that were real heavy. Heavy duty. And, and, and my, my fourth step. Um, I had a little girl after Annie. And Kimberly at a year and a half old, got the measles. And back then, when you got a child that got the measles, why, you had to watch them very, very carefully. And I was in the kitchen one morning, and I had been drinking, and I was busily pouring my wine into other little containers to hide around the house. And Annie came running out to the kitchen, and all three and a half years old of her tugged on my skirt and said, Mama, Kimmy's on the floor. And I totally ignored her. I told her to go away. I was busy. And she was back in a split second, and she said, Mama, Kimmy's the color of the sky. And I hit Anne. And I told Anne that I wanted her to leave me alone and that I was busy and I would get in there as soon as I could. And when I walked into that living room, um, paramedics and the doctors at uh, Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland said that Kimberly probably was on her fourth very violent convulsion by the time I got in there. And as a result of that, she lost an, a lot of oxygen. And she had brain damage because of this. And she retrogressed back to a three-and-a-half-week-old baby. And she remained that way until she died when she was nine years old. We had to put Kimberly into a private home because we couldn't care for her because of our other children. And my husband said, there is no way. And um, I never saw Kimberly sober. I never visited Kimberly sober. And when she died on a good Friday night when she was nine years old, and my husband went down to get her, I didn't go with him. I stayed home, and I got drunk. At the funeral, I was drunk, and this was real heavy. And my sponsor said, this is time you start learning about forgiveness that this program affords you. She said, sober. You never would have left that child alone. Sober, you would have watched that child. Sober. None of this would have happened. And she said, Beth, God knows everything that has gone on in your life. And God knows everything that you have been through, everything that happened when you were drinking. And God has given you a gift. 
of sobriety that you never even asked for. And if God has given you this gift and forgiven you enough, who are you not to forgive yourself? And over a period of time, I was able to forgive myself, to fully being aware of the fact that I am probably one of the best mothers and grandmothers that has ever been on the face of this earth. That there is nothing that I will not do for my children, for my grandchildren. That I will always be there, that I am there. And, and I, this has been proven with things that have happened. My daughter Linda called me two years ago. And Linda was seven months pregnant at the time. And Linda said, Mom, I need you. She said, the baby has not moved in three days. And I don't want to tell Nick, her husband, about it now. But I need to tell somebody, and Mama, I need you. And I went over and I held Linda, and we went to the doctor, and the baby had died. And I was there every minute of the time for my daughter when she had to go through three more weeks of carrying this child before she, they induced labor. And I was there at the hospital, and I sat there, and I held Linda, and I held Nick, and I tried to give to them what you have given to me over the years. And I could only do that because of this program and because of what I know about loss. And that I do know that this is a loving and a forgiving God. And I have been able to forgive myself for what went on when I was drinking. I also had a little boy that was eight days old when he died. Jeffrey was born an alcoholic. The whole delivery room stunk, my doctor said, like a bar room. And the child didn't have, didn't have a chance. He was born with DTs, and there was nothing they could do. And they had to let me go from the hospital because somebody had written a sign called murderous and, and put it on my door. And I was able to work my way through that, too, because of your love, because of you teaching me about forgiveness of self. The things like that that happened would never have happened, except for alcohol, who kept telling me it was okay to drink. It was okay to do this. It was okay to just keep my nose to myself, to do what I wanted to do. And I took that fifth step, and I was able to let go and release a lot of things and to work on forgiveness. And then I kind of trudged on and, and threw, the, threw the other steps for the first time. You're never done with those steps. Those steps are something, I believe, that, that we stand on, that we have to practice on a daily basis. And, and I work real hard on those steps. And isn't it a wonderful thing? We have 12 months in a year, and there are 12 steps. In January, I work real hard on step one, February on step two. Etc. And that's how my what my sponsor helps me with. And I got on to the making amends. And I believe amends is how you live your life. Amends is your responsibility to other people. 
And and I wasn't doing that, as I told you in the beginning. And my, you know, and this is when my home group came down hard. I've got a home group that knows what I'm doing and saying when I'm not even around. They 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 come up out of sewers. You know, I'll be driving down a freeway, and and I'm always get behind some person who is having an affair with an abutment and going like 25 miles an hour and it's Monday morning and I'm in a hurry and and I can't pass him and I sit there and I know what I want to do with my car in spades and all of a sudden right beside me toot toot beep beep yoo-hoo-hoo it's a member of your home group <laughs> God grant me the serenity <laughs> Go and treat the other people in your home like members of, of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I literally did. I went home and I shook their hands. Hi, I'm Beth. I'm mother. I didn't know who they were. I had this big and four littles. And I found out who they were. And I have attempted to live my life at home and in a supermarket. And when I'm behind some creep on the freeway, and I, you know, it's it's in all your affairs. The the hope, the love, the charity, the whole darn thing. It it's uh, and God is always a part of it, and He's always there. And uh, that wonderful man that that hung in there and stuck in there. What a wonderful guy. And and I we we started to go to movies together and and we started to get to know each other again and we could talk with each other, and and it was it it was a love affair that started all over again, but it was built on something solid this time. And, and when I was four years sober, he wasn't feeling well, and and we we went to the doctor and the doctor put him in the hospital, and, and uh, he fought it all the way. He was a wonderful man. He was a, he was a man's man. He was a magnificent golfer. He had seven holes in one in his lifetime, and, and he gave so much to his children. I, uh, the children today, I believe, are the way they are because he watched well their beginnings, and, and he showed them what love and charity and forgiveness was all about. And, and he was always at the Little League games, and he took them everywhere. And, and um, I was in the hospital room and heard those horrible words, acute myeloid monocytic leukemia, and my soul split. And, and I walked out those doors of that hospital, and there were two members of Alcoholics Anonymous there from my home group. I had called nobody. And they said, we just thought we'd drop by and go have a cup of coffee. And through the next two and a half years, I watched a man with more courage, a man who was unselfish, a man who put our needs in front of his. And, and I, I watched him. I watched him slowly die a day at a time. I couldn't say to him, all you need to do is to suit up and show up at meetings. All you need to do is to try to practice these 12 steps. All you need to do is to, it just doesn't work that way. I, I remember sitting in a kitchen, the kitchen table one day and, and, and saying to God, just go in there and perform your Lazarus deal. 
I, I'll do anything. I'll give you anything. And, and in my heart, there was a voice that said, would you give me your sobriety? And the answer was no. And on that day, I found out that my sobriety has got to come first in my life. That everything I am today and everything I do today is based on my sobriety. The night before Bruce died, he said to me, do you want to dance? And we put on an old Sinatra record. And, and I held him and rocked with him back and forth. He was six feet tall and he was down to 103. And, and I held him close and, and he held me. And he said to me, Beth, there's something I want you to remember and I want you to pass on. That there is nothing more important that ever entered our lives than Alcoholics Anonymous. Because not only did it give you your life back, but it gave us our lives back too. And he said, pretty soon I'll be able to say thank you to the man who made it all possible, who put sunshine, unbelievable sunshine, into the lives of my children and me, and because of Alcoholics Anonymous. When we were sitting with him the next day, my son Bruce, got on his knees by the bed when my husband was drifting off and into that place where I don't know where he was and then he'd wake up and when he had drifted off my, my son got on his knees and said dear God don't make daddy suffer anymore and I felt Bruce squeeze my hand and he was gone the hardest thing in my life was to let go of that man you were there all through this. When it was impossible for me to get out when he was ill, Ill you, you brought the big book into the kitchen table. You were there with your 12 and 12s. I never opened that mailbox in two and a half years that there wasn't a card from some group someplace. You, you literally carried me and my family through this. And for that, I am eternally grateful. I'll never be able to repay you for, for your kindness and your love. And, and what you have done for me and my family over the years. And, and all those memories that I have in the time spent with Bruce are good memories today. And, and I see all that he did in his life with what my children are doing in their lives today. He, I was able to, through all of this, make amends to my mother to understand my mother and, and to release my mother. My mother and dad are, are gone. All my aunts and uncles are gone. My brother remains. And I thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous for getting me through all of that. And, and those, those wonderful children... It was like a dream come true to see a family pull together and be intact. And that's the most wonderful thing in the world is, is all the things we do as a family, all the love and care. And do you know what my grandchildren have done? They've taught me how to run in the sunshine and chase butterflies and talk to ants and have tea with them under a cherry tree with their dolls, the girls. There's four girls and four boys. 
And, and it's just a wonderful thing. And it didn't happen overnight. I had to take on responsibility to do the things that I'm taught to do in these meeting rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. My oldest daughter, Anne, lives about an hour away, she and her family. And, and Annie and I are very, very close. And Annie has three grandchildren of mine. They are, they're wonderful kids. And, and I see them on a regular basis. My daughter, Linda, is, is again pregnant. And she, Linda already has four uh, of my grandchildren. And, and the other little granddaughter lives in, in Fairlawn. And I, I see them all the time. And, and my, I see Linda. Linda calls on a daily basis. Hi, Ma, how are you? I love you. And, and my son, Bruce, is a fine paramedic. And he and his wife, his family, live, live around the corner from us. And Brucey didn't speak to me for the first three years I was sober. I'd walk in a room and he'd walk out. I'd sit down to eat, and he'd get up from the table. And you know what you told me? Just do the things that you're supposed to do, and don't squash him. Hold him on the palm of your hand like a butterfly. It's like a butterfly. If it flies away and it doesn't come back, you were never meant to have it. And if it flies away and comes back, you were meant to have it. And on a very hot day, in July, and I had kept going to his little league games, and I kept going to his hockey games. But at this little league game, before he pitched the final ball of a championship game, his eyes searched the stands and found mine, and he saluted me with a ball. And after the game was over, he said to me, Mom, it doesn't matter if we win or we lose as long as you're here. And I was able to sit down and talk to him. And, and we, we are very, very close today. My son John is, is a fine paramedic. He's a baby and he's 33. The oldest one is going to be 43. And uh, John still resides at home. It's going to be John's house, so I should say I reside there. I, if, if you are... Um, I don't care, 29, 30, 31, 32, and want to come home with me, that's great. John's there waiting. He is, he's a wonderful, wonderful kid. And he is the one who came through the door in the very beginning of my sobriety, and he said, I'm home from school and I'm hungry. And I picked up a phone and called my sponsor, and I said, he's hungry. What the Samuel do I do? He says he wants lunch, and I don't know how to make I couldn't boil an egg before I was nine months sober. And, and this little baseball cap and these eyes came over a counter and he said, I'll teach you how to make lunch. And she heard him and she said, you came here as a child. You have to crawl before you walk. Take the hand of a child and let a child lead you. So he took out the peanut butter and jelly and the bread and he spread peanut butter on here and he said, Daddy says, be careful or you'll make holes and the jelly will fall through. And then he spread jelly on this and he put it together kind of haphazardly and he said, this is a sandwich, now you make one. <laughs> and with tears, tears streaming down my face, I made my first sober sandwich and a seven-year-old patted me on the back and said, job well done. This is what it's all about, people. This is what it's all about. It's life. It's life on life's terms. 
it's it's uh, oh, there's been some physical stuff in my life but you know with your love and your prayers and it's always been there love is the answer yes it is love is giving and not asking for anything in return and that's what we do so well in these rooms sobriety is a blessing and and I'd like to share this with you in closing and uh, it's it's something that my children wrote me on my anniversary this year and I would like to share it with you evidently they are they get together and then they come up with this stuff it was written on March the 4th or March it was written on March the 5th of, of 1998 mother You are an example to our children and to us. We have had and have our ups and downs, and you are always there with your understanding, unconditional love. We thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous for all the love and support they have not only given to you but to us as well. Mom, you brighten our days. Your thoughtfulness is a gift. Your smile brings the sunshine, your hug security, and your genuine caring blesses us all. Keep on your road, Mom, your wonderful sober road, your way of life that you are living, being taught by AA, blesses all our lives and the lives of others with the most precious things. May God continue to bless you special. Daddy must be very proud of you, Mom. He did tell that to us just before he died. He said your life will be all right because your mother is sober. You've taught us that God will bless our lives on a daily basis and that though we pass this way but once, we can make a difference. You have made a difference, Mom. Daddy made a difference, and we know we can. And it's signed, Annie Linda Bruce and John. I want to thank you for this because without you this never would have been. And now may the road rise to meet you and the wind be always at your back and the sun shine warm upon your face and the rain fall soft upon your field. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand in the nows of each day. God bless you. Have a wonderful life.